Today we're in part four of our Christmas series that we based it off of the first 17 verses of Matthew 1. Matthew, as we've talked about, is writing uh, to the Jewish people. He's giving the gospel, the good news, to proclaim who Jesus Christ is. And he's writing to the Jewish audience, so he's trying to make a case of why Jesus is the Messiah. But as he goes through this genealogy, he also has uh, some ulterior motivations. If he's trying to prove to the Jews that, hey, this is Jesus, that Jesus has the authority to be the Messiah, that Jesus has the lineage to be the Messiah, but you need Jesus too, but the Gentiles need Jesus. And as we went through, we've seen um, multiple women that are included in the genealogy because Matthew is trying to challenge the status quo. Matthew is trying to challenge the ideas and understanding of who the Messiah was actually going to be. And so we've talked over individuals like Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth, and their stories, their struggles, because they were outside of God's chosen people. They were Gentiles. They weren't supposed to be there. And even when we look at this list, they not only were not supposed to be in the list because they're women, they're not supposed to be in the list because they're Gentiles, but here they are, and Matthew's including them in saying that with God sending Jesus, there's a way for all people to be reunited and made right with God. And today's kind of takes a little bit of a twist. See, we do a little bit of a time jump. Last week we talked about Ruth, who is the great-grandmother of King David. And today we're dealing with King David and an individual who is listed in this genealogy, who is in the lineage of Jesus Christ. And it's a little bit different. So we, we kind of jump from great-grandma all the way to King David, and we're looking at Bathsheba today. Now, one of the things you're going to realize in this story is that humanity is full of brokenness, and sometimes we'd rather not talk about the brokenness. Right. It's really easy to do that kind of small talk of saying, oh, how are you doing today? Let's talk about the weather. Let's talk about, like, bare minimum of, of your job, bare minimum of, of details, and never actually go deep. But when we're called to be disciples, we're called to impact and challenge and sharpen one another, and you have to get past this surface level stuff. You have to dig deep. You have to get into the issues. And it's uncomfortable sometimes to have some of these conversations. But we're going to have this conversation because this is in the lineage of Jesus. And ultimately, here's the thing you need to realize out of today's message is that there needs to be brokenness in this family of Jesus so that Jesus can come and redeem that brokenness. Mm -hmm. If there was no brokenness, then there would be no need for Jesus to come. And here's the thing that's interesting in, in chapter 1 of, uh, of Matthew, that he does something unique with this genealogy. It was Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. But let that one hit you. That it's Obed, the father of Jesse, Jesse, the father of King David, and this is how this whole genealogy has been going. Then all of a sudden we get to David, and, and David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Uriah's wife. So he just had Solomon with someone else's wife. And I thought King David was a man after God's own heart. Here's the thing, even the best of us mess up. Right. Let, let that just sink in your mind and be something that you walk out of here today but through life with is just because someone is following after God and has it what it seems like altogether, there's still a human that is... Uh, born in the sin that needs to be redeemed by the power of Jesus. Still makes mistakes, still has issues, still has struggles. If you expect that other people are going to arrive or that you're going to arrive on this side of eternity, you are painfully uh, wrong. But we are growing and looking more like Jesus on a day-to-day -day basis. 
And so we get this in here where it's Uriah's wife. And if we know our Bible history, and the audience that Matthew knew and was writing to knew their Bible history, because he's writing to the Jews, he's writing about what happened in their past and in their history, Uriah the Hittite's wife, he meets Bathsheba. And so on one hand, it's really easy to look at this and say, well, why didn't you say Bathsheba? Why couldn't you call her out? Because he's really making the point of David was a sinner. That part of the way of getting to Abraham was saying, well, what's the relationship to David? What's the relationship to Abraham? But just saying, hey, King David, this guy that you all look up to, he's a sinner. He slept with someone else's wife. And as we go through the story today, had the husband killed so that he could hide all the sin. And, and here's the thing, sin will eventually come out. Just confessing and get out of the way. So... Interestingly, she gets referred to as Uriah the Hittite's wife. Her name's there. It's just not put in. Now, when we, we look at this, I think there's a particular reason why. He identifies that David as a sinner, but it's almost like Matthew is trying to go back in time and just kind of like stick the knife in David a little bit of just kind of like tweak it of like, yeah, he didn't have it all together. But as a reminder for this Jewish audience, who was operating so often as the Pharisees, the Sadducees, that are basically saying that, well, Jesus couldn't be the Messiah. Jesus had this wrong, Jesus had that wrong, and ultimately, he's here saying, hey, if David was messed up, that means you might be messed up. And if you're messed up, you need Jesus. And so you see Bathsheba enter the story, and it's almost like this dark cloud comes over. For us, we just look at it as, oh, it's this nice little family lineage. But it's all of a sudden, it's this like fleshing out of a major issue that's going on in the family. You always kind of hear that saying that you're not at like Thanksgiving and at Christmas, you're not supposed to talk about money, politics, and religion because you're going to cause fights and arguments. This is Matthew really doing that of saying, hey, I know your issues, I'm going to, I'm going to push your buttons because I need you to understand that this matters. But before we jump into the passage, would you repeat after me this morning, Heavenly Father, your word is written in my mind and hidden in my heart. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I will seek you with all of my strength. My greatest desire is to be a disciple and to make more disciples. I will live my life according to your word. Your word, O Lord, is eternal. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1 through 5. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all of Israel. And they ravaged it. Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. When we set up this story, you kind of know right off the bat that something's wrong. You get this, when the kings go off the war, David sent Joab. David's not where he's supposed to be. 
let me just encourage you, and it's, I'm going to even just tie it back to what I was just talking about when Pastor Jacob was up here, and if being a part of the worship team, or being a part of the media and the tech team, or being a part of the kids' ministry, or being part of Warming Center. When you know that God has clearly spoken something to you, and you're not doing what God has clearly spoken to you, you're like David when the kings went off the war and he said, Joab. God has clearly spoken to you. Because here's the thing. Hear it again. In the spring of the year, the uh, time when kings went out the battle, David sent Job and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. God still gets his will. God still gets his way. But David put himself in a really bad spot. David put him into a, himself into a difficult spot that's going to lead him down into a pathway of sin that's going to cause issues for not just David, but for his family and generations. And here's the thing. He might have just looked at it and said, well, I've got trained guys. I've got people that can go. I'm just going to send them. When you know that God has spoken something to you, that this is your responsibility, your obligation, you've got to go and do it. Do not have an attitude, well, that person can do it for me. No. If God's called you, you need to do it. You need to do it. The David's story might have looked different. Israel's story might have looked different. The New Testament might have looked different. But David didn't make the right choice. David wasn't where he was supposed to be. He was supposed to be off fighting the battles that God had called him to do, and he sent someone else to do it. Pastor and theologian Haddon Robinson had a well-known sermon on this passage, and he speculated that David was sort of having a midlife crisis and was just bored. That, you know what, I've done everything, I've gained all this land, everything's kind of going my way, I'm just going to stay here, I don't feel like going and fighting today. He lost the passion. He lost the desire to do what God had designed him to do. That David had been this little boy who had went to fight Goliath, that saw something that was wrong. He saw an issue and said, well, aren't any of you going to do anything about it? And then nobody would. And so he grabbed the five stones. He grabbed his sling. He grabbed what God had given him, his talents, his abilities, his resources, and he slayed a giant. And began this pathway to become a king. And here he is, just bored. I'm not going to go. Like, doesn't he want the adventures? I mean, David, he's the one that's been chased by King Saul and has lived in caves and just wants to stay back. I don't need to go. I, not, not this time. I'll let somebody else have the, the, the honor and let someone else. No, God had called him, and he was deciding to not go. And here's the thing that, that happens so often when you get into a midlife crisis. You start making choices that you shouldn't have made, and you know that you shouldn't have made them. You go out and look for excitement. You have a midlife crisis because you're bored and you're just you're looking for something to spice things back up in your life again, to give you excitement. And David finds that very thing. When he's looking at a place that he shouldn't be looking. You see, in this story, when we hear this about King David and he's walking on the roof and he sees this woman bathing. See, in our culture, if someone was bathing on the roof, pretty decent chance that they're doing it so everybody can see them. In this culture, not the case. We have hot running water in our houses. In this case, if you wanted warm water, you would have to put water in a bathtub on the roof so that the sun could keep the water and so that you could bathe. And by the way, David's living in probably the biggest building in, in, in the town because he's living in the castle and he's looking out upon everyone else. So David is above looking, well, who's out there? See, when you understand the context, you understand the story, you realize the fact Bathsheba is not at fault here for being seen. 
David is the one who intentionally went on the roof looking. And David put himself in that position. What's interesting is in this whole process that he sees Bathsheba, he's bored, he's not where he's supposed to be, and all of a sudden he invites Bathsheba, he's told that this is the wife of Uriah, he doesn't care, and has her come anyways, and they end up sleeping together. David is breaking the commandments left and right. We look at the, the book of Psalms and we see all these Psalms about how I love your commands, how I love your laws, and here's David messing up left and right. As we just look at this without even trying to come up with uh, the Ten Commandments, he commits adultery, he covets what's his neighbors, that he is going to put Uriah into an intentional position to have him uh, killed, so he's uh, broken the do not murder, that he's going to wind up lying about all this. Like right there, without even trying, he's broken four of the Ten Commandments. And we could easily make uh, cases for others as well. That's why when the scripture says that if you are guilty of breaking one commandment, you're pretty much guilty of breaking all of them. That we are called to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. In this case, David is not loving Uriah, his neighbor, as himself. Because he's in it for what is best for me. And so we can easily look at Bathsheba, and I think this is part of the reason as well why Bathsheba's name doesn't get put into the genealogy, but it's the wife of Uriah, because they're trying to put the emphasis off of Bathsheba and put it onto what David did to Uriah. And so there's a power dynamic that's going on here. There's a lot of issues that when you look at this particular case, you want to look at David so often in Scripture as like David is this up right, upstanding guy. He's got it all together. He has no issues. If we look at this example of, of this passage in Chronicles, it actually kind of cleans up the story a little bit, but here in Samuel it does, and it gives us the, here's the R-rated story, here's the version that happens, here's the uncomfortable truth of what actually is happening here. Because in a best-case scenario, David and Bathsheba willingly participated in adultery together. In a worst-case uh, scenario, David abused his power and took advantage of a, a woman when her husband was off at war where David should have been. It's not a good look at David in either way. And so we're seeing his pride come out, we're seeing adultery, we're seeing coveting, we're seeing power dynamics between the, the king and someone in his kingdom. And then the plot thickens because she gets to the end of the passage that I just read and says, I'm pregnant. David thought he was probably going to get away with it, have no issues, and then those two words pop up, I'm pregnant. And then all of a sudden, the sin issue comes into play. All of a sudden, he can't hide it anymore. Now, we could look back at ancient Israel, and we could look at all of the things that they didn't know about how babies are made, and we could probably fill books. So there's books telling us about the whole experience of babies being uh, born and do, do this, don't do this, eat this, don't eat that, take this vitamin. They didn't know all this stuff, but I can tell you one thing that the people in ancient Israel knew is they could count to nine. <laughs> they knew where Uriah was, and all of a sudden when you see Bathsheba pregnant, and you know how pregnant uh, she is, and then all of a sudden, but Uriah was gone, and I, I can count to nine, that doesn't add up. That doesn't make any sense here. And so David realizes that it's pretty quick that people are going to realize that Uriah is not the father. And they might not have pinned it on David right away, but David starts getting into this model. Like, well, i got to prove it. i I, I got I to shift it. i got to get Uriah to sleep with his wife. So now all of a sudden we get into 2 Samuel eleven sixty nine. 
So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a uh, present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. So it's interesting. We, we see the same kind of phrase that came up in the book of Ruth last week. That Naomi told Ruth of go prepare yourself, go, uh, go to Boaz, and lay yourself at his feet. And I kind of mentioned it last week, and here it is again. This is a euphemism at that time. That David's basically saying, hey, coming from war, let, let's talk business for a second. Let, tell me about what's going on. Is Joab a good leader? Are the troops feeling good? I'm so glad you're here. You've got that beautiful wife over there. How about you go and take the night and go be with your wife. Go, go sleep with your wife. <laughs> take that night. Get a good meal. But when we look at it, Uriah, he's not going to do that. Because Uriah has, in this moment, has a higher sense of morality than what David is saying. David is bringing him in off the, uh, the war with the intention of saying, I'm going to cover up my mistake. But Uriah is saying, you know what? My fellow troops, they're at war. My fellow troops are sitting in tents. My fellow troops are eating whatever food we happen to have around the campfire. No, I'm not going to do this. I'm, I'll sit down where the, the king's servants are. I'm not, I'm not going to go home tonight. It's not fair. It's not right. And we're beginning to see that something that is very true in our culture, very true, we especially see in politics, that the cover-up is always worse than the crime. So often in our lives, if we would just, if when we messed up, say, hey, you know what, here's my mess up, here's my mistake, I admit it, I'm wrong. So many situations would improve themselves dramatically. Let's just look at a case like this. Watergate was a bad situation. Watergate ultimately brings down Nixon and his presidency. But if Nixon had just came clean when Watergate first broke, it probably doesn't cause him to be impeached. It's what he does afterwards to try and cover up Watergate that causes him to ultimately get impeached. The cover-up is worse than the crime. David is going hard in the cover-up in this moment. The crime has already been committed. But instead of trying to say, you know what, I'm going to own up to what I did, no, he is trying to double down on this. And so he's trying to, to get... Uh, Uriah to sleep with his wife. He's trying desperately so that he can feel uh, his consciousness clear and say, oh look, Uriah got his wife pregnant. But it's not happening. He keeps trying to talk him into it. He doesn't go and do it. And then ultimately we get to a spot where he, David realizes that Uriah is not going to do what he wants him to do. And then we read this in verses 14 and 15. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And the letter he wrote sent Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. The cover-up is worse than the crime. Because in this moment, he realizes, I'm going to fail to be able to do this. I'm going to fail to be able to get Uriah to do the simple thing of just going and being with his wife. So, my answer that's going to be better than that is say, I'm going to send Uriah back, and I'm going to put a note in his hand, which would have had the, the king's seal on it, so he wouldn't have been able to open it. He takes it back to Joab, and the note basically says, put Uriah in the front of the worst fighting that you can find, and as soon as he's in the front, and as soon as there's a battle going on, pull all the troops back so Uriah dies. He sent Uriah back with his own death sentence for doing nothing 
wrong whatsoever other than having high integrity and morality and refusing to the compromise. This is the David that we talk about that's after God's own heart. Let me just put this in here for a moment. Bathsheba is in the lineage of Jesus. And we'll see it in a second why. David is in the lineage of Jesus. There's brokenness here. There's problems here. There's family dynamics here. There's issues that are going on. I mean, David basically ordered a mob hit on your eye. When you really stop and think, like, how cold is that? To look someone in their eye, thank them for their service, hand them a note, knowing full well that that note is going to cause their death. Because now David thinks this. If I can get him to go back and be killed, then I can bring Bathsheba into my house. And then when everyone discovers that she's pregnant, it's going to be it's going to be okay because it all happened after Uriah died, right? He feels like he can play this off and really hide this. But when we look at verse twenty-seven of Second Samuel eleven, it says this: And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord because it wasn't right. It was not right. It, this whole thing kind of reminds me of, of the show uh, Hoarders. I don't know if you've ever watched Hoarders. Like, how many of you, you watch Hoarders or a show like that with kind of this, like, it's almost like a train wreck. Like, you don't want to keep watching this, but you really can't take your eyes away from it. Because, like, you see everything that's wrong and everything that's going on. You see the problems. It's like, just clean your house. Like, that's a whole box of cereal. You don't need it. Throw it away. And you kind of find yourself screaming at the TV, like, just do something. Like, clean it up. Do... And ultimately, there's this train wreck coming, and the only way to fix it in hoarders is to have someone from the outside of the family come in and kind of plead, like, please, change your ways. Like, this is not healthy for you. This is not good for you. And in this case, David is about to have his hoarders moment. When we look at 2 Samuel 12, 1-7, when the prophet Nathan comes on the scene. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had brought. And he brought it up, and he, he grew up with him and with his children. He used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there was a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the land fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Because the truth is going to come out. That you can look at it and say, like, or he, he covered it up, he was successful, Uriah's dead, no one's going to know that this uh, son from Bathsheba is actually David when Uriah was still alive. But God just is, is good at what he does. Because he still had higher plans for David and for David's lineage. So he had to flesh this out. He had to get this worked out so that he could move forward in the right direction. Now, Nathan the prophet going to the king David, he can't just walk up and say, hey, you're wrong, because he would have every right to uh, be put to death himself. 
But he goes up with this great story, and he gets David to get upset about it and say, that's wrong, and that person deserves to die. And then he just looks at him and he's like, you're the man. This is what you did. And then it just hits David. You're right. I messed up. I'm hiding this. It's not right. We get to verse 13, and he says, I have sinned against the Lord. And he realizes that he's at a turning point, that something needs to change, and he needs to return back. So, yes, eventually David says, I've sinned against the Lord, but Nathan goes on to predict that there will be consequences to this. Because here's the thing you need to realize with sin. There's always consequences. The beautiful thing is through Jesus' birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension, and return, that we have the freedom from the, the, the eternal consequences, but that doesn't mean that we just get to escape the consequences here. Just because you have eternal forgiveness from God doesn't mean that you're not responsible for things that you've done. And this is what Nathan is predicting, that the child that Shiva is bearing right now is going to die. So this son that is born will die. Uh, but she will have another one who will be Solomon, and this, uh, this child that God's going to move with. But then also you're going to have rebellion in your household. And this will later happen with Absalom and Ammon and all that ugliness. That you did this in secret, but God's going to punish you and deal with this in public. And we see this complicated, depressing, difficult story, and it's amazing. You're like, well, this is the week before Christmas, and why are you preaching such a... a like, I'm used to just coming and like, what, what are, what's the, the story about the wise men today? And tell me about the shepherds and tell me about the little, the little lambs and how beautiful and everything is. No, we've got to talk about this so that we can focus next week on Jesus' coming. Because this is the reason Jesus came. Because we can look at the lineage of Jesus, and we've talked through now four of the five women that are mentioned in the lineage, and there's problems, there's issues, there's struggles that, yes, it's Christmas. Yes, Silent Night. But there's a reason that Silent Night comes into play because we need to be able to see that this is the reason Jesus came. That Jesus came because of all of these people that God so desperately cares about needed him. And even King David needed him. And so when we look at Bathsheba, we don't have this incredible detailed story about her like we did with Ruth. Like there is no book of Bathsheba. That we don't get as much about her as we do with a, a Tamar. But here's the thing that we realize. That Bathsheba is pulled into the story because of King David. And that there's issues and there's problems and there's brokenness. And there's brokenness all over scripture. That there's drama in the book of Genesis. That when we get to chapter 3, we instantly see brokenness when Adam and Eve decide to do what they're not supposed to do. And from that moment sets off this entire history that gets us to the manger so that Jesus can come. So that Jesus can die on the cross eventually for us. When we tell our stories to people, there has to be brokenness in it. I think one of the problems is that the reason people don't like giving their testimony is because it requires them of vulnerability of sharing, this is who I was, this is my mistakes. But the problem is so often we get focused on, here's my problems, here's my mistakes. People want to get to the glory side of the story. People want to see, like, well, how did God redeem you? They don't need to hear, like, here's the, let me give you a 37-year history on every single thing that I've ever done wrong in my life. No, they're like, hey, I messed up here. But God, Amen. this is what God did for me. Hallelujah. That my story was ugly, my story was a mess, but God. Yeah, God. 
that there was sin in my life, there was pain in my life, there was brokenness in my life, but God. And when we get to that point of being so excited to share our story and not afraid of what people might say to us, because David is operating this lot of, of shame and fear, because he knows what he did, and he knows the consequences if it gets out. But the consequences began to grow and became worse because he was trying to hide what was going on. That ultimately, when we look at these individuals in the story, we, are, we should be as, I mean, unless you're Jewish and you have Jewish heritage in the room, for most of us, I would say that we fall more under the category of Gentile. I'm grateful for these five women that are mentioned throughout uh, this, this book. Because I see the brokenness of, of the able to come in. We see the Gentiles be able to come in. We see something begin to shift and something begin to change. That when we look at someone like Mary, and the idea that here's a, a teenage girl that said yes, and it doesn't make sense. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, the thing that God has called me to do doesn't make sense. Well, let's just go back for a moment. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab. It might not make sense, but God called you. And God called you to live a life that was above reproach. God called you to live a life that was no longer getting down in the sin. God called you to live a life that would point people to Jesus. Because he sent Jesus. If you've accepted Jesus, you've been redeemed, you've been bought with the blood of the Lamb so that you can be restored, so that you can go and tell others. Because that's why we finish every single week with the Great Commission. Is it's our job to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's no longer about you. It's no longer about me, but it's all about pointing people back to Jesus. We were created so that we could worship Jesus. As we're singing those songs this morning, that I'm coming back to the heart of worship where it's all about you. It's not about uh, how many people are on the stage, how many people are not on the stage, how many people are in the congregation. It's about you coming personally back to the heart of worship. It's almost one of the ironies of that song is that it was created out of a time period where the church basically stripped everything away and then slowly brought things back. And now, it, over time, it's become one of those uh, big songs that churches love singing, but they don't have the heart behind the church that originally wrote it. Because when they originally wrote it, it was about saying, hey, we got this all mixed up. Church is not about having every single activity under the sun. The church is not about filling up your schedule. Church is about Jesus. And it's always about Jesus. It's serving the least of these. It's doing the very things that God has called you to do. If I can have the worship team go ahead and come back up. We're going to be ending this morning uh, with the song, God, I Look To You. And I just want to challenge you on basically just kind of two fronts with the song this morning. Is that as we sing it, if you're in here and you've just never made that decision, you've never just looked to God, and said, God, would you just be Lord of my life? We'll have a prayer team that will be uh, up in the altar that they're more than willing to pray with you and help you accept Jesus. Simple process, just saying, like, Jesus, I just want to live for you. I understand that you came by a virgin, by Mary, that you were born, you lived this in this life, that you went to the cross, you were fully God and fully man at the same time, that you fulfilled the old covenant that I couldn't fulfill on my own, that you fulfilled the law that I couldn't do on my own, that you've redeemed me, you've restored me, you've made me right, and that you're coming again and I want you in my life. It's simple. that The, the prayer team will help you with that. But I would even say this as well, that if you're in here today and you're just saying, like, there's stuff going on that if people do, I don't know what I would do. you got to stop covering it up. 
Stop being an individual that would consistently just say that, well, I'm just going to hide this because no one's going to know David thought that. And then it eventually came out. And this morning, I don't think there's any better way of leading up to uh, Christmas next week and then dealing with our, our, our sin issues now and seeking forgiveness and accepting Jesus of simply saying, like, I'm, I'm coming back to the heart of worship. That I got, I look to you. I don't look to the left, I don't look to the right. I look to you. Because you're God and you're great and you're powerful. I look to you because you've redeemed me, you've restored me, you've set me free. I look to you because you have a plan and a purpose and a will and a hope for me. I look to you because there's no one else I'd rather look to. I look to you because you are God Almighty, creator of the universe. I look to you, you're Alpha and Omega, you're the beginning and you're the last. I look to you because who else could I go to? What else could I do? That I look to you because you are worthy to be praised. I look to you because it's not just about a manger, but it's about a cross. It is not just about a cross, but it's about a tomb. It is not just about a tomb, but it's about an empty tomb. And it's not just about an empty tomb, but it's about a Lord and Savior that's going to be coming back again to take what's His because He bought and paid for it on that cross. Because the story, while not done, is already written, and it is finished, and it is good, and Jesus wins. So this morning, church, I want us just to stand, I want us to worship, I want us to look to God, and if you need to come to the prayer team, don't let anyone else wonder why, why are they going to prayer. If you need prayer for healing, come to the prayer team. If you need prayer for uh, salvation, come to the prayer team. If you need prayer to deal with your forgiveness issue, come to the prayer team. If you need prayer just to get you and God, come to the altar and get down on your knees and pray to God and say, God, would you just come in and do something? Yeah. Because it's not about us, but it's about God being in us, through us, Emmanuel, God with us. God didn't just come with us so he could just be by our side, but so that he could be in us and using us to accomplish his purposes. Because if he is in us and he is for us, then who can be against us? So this morning, let's just worship and lift the name of God on high.